Welcome to the Menu Bar. I'm Zach Saichi, and my co-host is Andrew J. Clark. After three solid weeks without guests, we're getting back on the wagon. But before we dive into what's easily one of my favorite episodes we've done, I want to take a moment to thank everyone who has supported us and continues to support us on Patreon. Without your support, we wouldn't be able to produce this show. Your patronage is what guarantees us being able to keep the lights on. If you are already a patron, you have our gratitude. If you are not yet a patron and you are a fan of our content, just consider leaving a donation over at patreon.com slash themenubar. And to everyone else, well, we're just happy you're listening. Now, down to business. This week we talked to former art director of Nine Inch Nails and more recently turned comic book creator Rob Sheridan. He discusses how he came to join Nine Inch Nails at just 18 years old, his creative kinship with Trent Reznor, finding happy accidents and doing things the wrong way, the inception and lasting impact of his work on Year Zero, his and Trent Reznor's role in architecting the Beats music vision, as well as some new insight into how the whole Apple Music transition went down. And finally, we talked to him a little bit about his recently announced comic book, High Level, that will be appearing on Vertigo Comics in 2019. Here is episode 24, Beauty and Accidents, with Rob Sheridan. Welcome to the Menu Bar, a place to relax, talk tech, and drink. Is this the first episode we've ever done with three people where we're all on the same fucking time zone? That very much depends where Rob lives. Uh, I'm in Seattle. As am I. <laughs> you are? I am. I, I actually live in uh, Issaquah, oh. which is a little far off from Seattle, but I pass through uh, downtown Seattle almost every day. So. Oh, wow. Well, then you know... Um... Very well, the mistake I just made of going out for a walk, and now my voice is scratchy from oh, the I'm, smoke. <laughs> I'm in the same boat, man. I, uh, I I was out in it all day. Yeah, so. it's, it's bad out there. It's brutal. And I didn't then, I was going to feel it so well, tangibly in my throat. <laughs> just damn. Well, and, and I'm an I'm an extra idiot. Just to add insult to injury, I also smoke on top of this. Like I, sm- I ah. smoke cigarettes. Well, then you're probably more a little more used to it. <laughs> that, that's true. Maybe I'm more like acclimated to this. If I take a drag off a cigarette, I'm like <laughs> like a like a twelve year old, you know, right? <laughs> My first clove or something. So I'm not used to it. Do twelve year olds still smoke? I remember when I was a kid, that was like something the really cool, really edgy tweens would do. But is that still a thing? I don't know. I mean, I don't. I don't know a lot of twelve year olds. But, uh, <laughs> well, you Sarah on your own for the record. Um, yeah, it was the same way when I was a kid, and it was like the the, the supposedly cool kids would smoke cloves, oh, <laughs> and they thought that was badass. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so welcome to the show, Rob Sheridan. Uh, this has been kind of like a long time, a long time kind of brewing. I think I must have messaged you like eight months ago or something like that uh, to see if you'd be interested in coming on the show, and here we are, finally. Yeah, uh, finally. Yeah, well, thanks for I appreciate me. you taking the time. I know you're a very, very busy guy. Uh, I'll get around. <laughs> <laughs> so, geez, I don't even know where to start. I'm, I'll, I'll just be honest, like I'm kind of fanboying out right now. Um, <laughs> because, I mean, I'm just not going to lie, like Nine Inch Nails, like fucking like part of my identity, you know? So how did you get started in this crazy life that you lead? Well, um, it all started when uh, I was in high school, and um, I was kind of a, I, I was a very creative kid, I used to draw a lot, and um, 
make things and write stories and and I was really into computers um, but I didn't our family didn't have one but I I'd try to learn as much as I could about computers when I was at school and I could get access to them and then somewhere around maybe I don't know 95 or something um, a family friend of ours gave us his old computer and it was like it was like this huge toolbox opened up that I and I just became obsessed and I just wanted to I started making art and learning animation and and um, getting online and just um, you know the internet was a crazy wild west of a place back then and um, I remember getting all kinds of like hacks to get free trial AOL accounts so that I could talk to my internet girlfriends and stuff <laughs> you know um, and I I gradually um, came to want to learn how to like make websites and stuff so. I decided to try and teach myself um, HTML when I was like 16, and um, I was like, okay, well, what am I going to make a web page about? And I decided, well, I'm going to make it about my favorite band, Nine Inch Nails. So I made a Nine Inch Nails fan page when I was a teenager, and uh, it became it, it was it was great for me because it was like, okay, here's a bunch of content that already exists that I can make a web page around and teach myself. And also taught myself uh, a lot about graphic design, um, Photoshop and everything in the process of making the graphics for the site. So my page was, it was like one of the more popular ones, I guess, um, when it, when it really took off. And, um, when I went off to college in 98, um, went to art school and I wasn't like really maintaining my old fan page anymore, but it was still there. And, um, Trent was looking for someone to come down to his studio in New Orleans and um, kind of someone who was a fan who could go down there and help them build their very first official Nine Inch Nails website and like be around with them and take photos and kind of be the liaison between um, the fans and the band and kind of give the fans like a peek, you know, inside what's going on. So he, uh, he had his publicist in, uh, New York, look into like a bunch of the fan pages and um, reach out to some of the ones they thought were the best. And um, it just so happened that I was in New York going to school and ended up talking uh, to Trent's people in New York and they liked me. So they sent me down to meet Trent in New Orleans and uh, we hit it off. And before I knew it, I was quitting school and running off to join a rock band. This <laughs> <laughs> is the crazy story. It was a fun yeah. conversation with my mom. I'm freshman year of college that we'd like worked so hard to like get me into this college that was like <laughs> prestigious and it was way out of our budget, but I got a scholarship and it was like, okay, but I don't know, sophomore year, how I'm going to pay for this, but we'll just figure it out. And then all of a sudden I'm like, oh yeah, hey mom, I'm quitting school. <laughs> Moving to New Orleans. <laughs> how old were you at this point? I was, uh, I was 18. Holy moly. Jeez. What were you studying? Uh, I was studying computer graphics. I, at the time, I wanted to actually go into um, computer animation and special effects. And um, I, I didn't actually have any photography skills or, or real graphic design skills beyond my uh, horrible 90s design websites <laughs> that I made. <laughs> so it was kind of like, um, I, I think... There were a few other people that were um, interviewing with uh, Trent at the time, and I remember, you know, chatting with them before we all went into like, you know, meet with them. And I'm like, oh my god, these guys! Like, one of them was like a concert photographer, and one of them was like a really good web developer. I'm like, oh my god, I have none of these skills. But it mostly Trent and I ended up talking about playing Quake, <laughs> and he was like, 
he just see like we got along really well and he was just like yeah i want this guy around yeah. i kind of uh ended up learning so much on the job uh i learned i learned photography i learned graphic design and, and the more that i learned and adapted to and i think you know i think a lot of people who are creative and artistic you know you realize that a lot of it's just tools and you can adapt a, a visual um you can adapt a visual kind of adaptability. That didn't make sense. Adapt a visual adaptability. <laughs> adapt a visual language across multiple fields, you know. So the more kind of like different things that I learned, it was like, oh, okay, well, now that I know the tool, I can still apply um, my like creativity to, to something else. And it wasn't really that hard to adapt to all the things that I had to do um, for nails. And the more that I did them, the more Trent was like, wow, Hey, can you do this now? Can you do this now? And before I knew it, I wasn't just the kid updating the website anymore. Uh, I was their art director and making album covers and music videos and designing tours. And it just kind of snowballed into more and more and more creative responsibilities. It's just sort of, um, just mind blowing. So you almost, I mean, instead of going to school for all this stuff, you just sort of went and did all this stuff with Trent, right? Like, it's yeah, just... I mean, I, I really learned on the job and, um, and that's why it was kind of cool. Cause I really was just hired to be like the kid who hangs out and updates the website. And, um, and then just by, by adapting and, and trying and like starting to make stuff more and more and more and like Trent learning to, cr- to trust me creatively and really like my work he was like, well, well, how about you just do the next album cover? How about you just do the next this, the next that? And then over, over no the pressure. course of, I know, and then before I knew it, I mean, within within a couple of years, I was editing and directing a feature-length concert film for them. Wow. And I'd never edited, I'd never edited any video in my life. And I, I um, learned, it, the reason that happened, actually, um, the, the movie's called End All That Could Have Been. I don't know if you've seen that one. Oh, yeah, I have the DVD. Yeah. So the the reason that kind of that came to be um, was because of Final Cut. That that thing wouldn't have happened without Final Cut. Because um, Trent, you know, the, the Trent really hated the typical way of doing concert films where you um, you hire a production company to come out and it's a big, expensive shoot and there's cranes and all this stuff, and he feels like it puts so much pressure. He always hated that directors would ask him to like tone down the strobes and turn up the lights a little bit and like change the concert experience to make it work for the camera. And when we were talking about how to film the Fragility Tour, I had been just filming on a little DV camera, and when I showed him, mostly for the website, and when I showed him some of the footage and just and had edited it myself thanks to Final Cut, first coming out and being like, Oh, cool. This is so much easier than premiere. I can just edit this on my laptop. And I showed him some edited footage and he's like, this is how I want it to look. I want it to look raw. I want it to look filmed with a handy cam, like in the crowd. And, and why, why are we going to hire some big flashy production company to make it look not the way a national show feels? Let's make one using all your footage. And, uh, He's like, can you edit it? I'm like, uh, I guess. <laughs> and so <laughs> what we edited, and, and, and I'm immensely proud of it because we took footage from um, the entire tour, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hours from all different shows and edited them all into one show. So when you're cutting, when you're cutting around, it's cutting from totally different shows back and forth. 
And, uh, and a lot of people didn't even realize that it, it works seamlessly enough. Yeah. When I watched it, I didn't realize at the time, uh, that it was, that it was actually like multiple concerts. I thought it was just one concert. You, <laughs> yeah. yeah well, I, I mean, I, props to you for taking that much shit. And <laughs> one thing I did do is I tried to like, not, I tried to like never cut directly between two shots where like Robin had cut his hair. <laughs> You know? yeah. so I tried to like make sure I didn't go from like one to the next where it was like super jarring, but like, you know, from the verse to the chorus later on, you might notice that Robin got a haircut in the song, nah. but, but uh, for the most good. part, it's very, it, very, it's good. pretty convincing, but it worked out well because we got to pick all of the best moments from the entire tour and put them into kind of the ultimate show and, um, and the, the kind of amateurness of the footage and the rawness of it is something Trent always loved ever since the, um, he did this closure to her documentary in the 90s. And uh, he, he just felt that really captured the Nigel experience better than some really polished, you know, cable TV thing. Yes, I mean, it's really interesting the way the um, progression of technology can almost be seen through, like, you know, the discography of Nine Inch Nails and all the all the stuff you guys tried over the years. Like, it was all kind of adapting to what was going on at the time, like you said, with... Uh, you know, when when Final Cut came out, that was like the very beginning of of like you know DV Handycam stuff. Yeah, and because we we could use consumer DV cameras. I mean, we used prosumer ones for the most part, but also some like really cheap consumer ones. Right. And the fact that I could just plug that in through FireWire to my laptop on the road and digitize it, and we didn't need some big expensive Avid equipment or anything like that. Um, it really changed our ability to, you know, to churn out a full length concert film in house. We did it all ourselves. And that was, that was really game changing for us. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's, uh, it's a monumental like concert film. It's probably one of the very best like concert films I've ever seen, honestly. Like, well, well, thank you. (laughs) It did a good job. Um, so (laughs) where did your, like, there's just a million questions I want to ask you, Rob. Um, where did your fascination with glitch art start? Um, it it really started with Nine Inch Nails, um, I think, because as a as a fan of Nine Inch Nails and what Trent did musically, uh, a lot of it, uh, especially when I like started working with him and was in the studio and watching him work, um, so much of what he does was experimenting with the wrong ways to do things and. Um, and in watching him um, record uh, the fragile, and then record um, with teeth, and seeing how much he liked to break things and misuse them and get happy accidents, and and you know experiment with doing things the way they're not supposed to, to create sounds that sound kind of beautifully broken. Right. When with teeth came around, um, I I had done like some like a little bit of artwork for. Um, couple things here and there, but for the most part, um, David Carson did all the artwork for the fragile and we were looking at, um, a bunch of artists to consider to do the album, uh, art for Trent's new album with teeth. And along the way, I was just like, as we'd been going through the whole recording process, um, I'd just been making some art of my own, um, to use for internal promos and stuff like that. And the more Trent was kind of looking around at different, um, you know, big name artists to use. And then he kept seeing the stuff that I was making. He's like, I like this stuff so much better. Why don't you just do the art? And, 
And I was, <laughs> again, it was another one of those things like, oh, my God, you just want me to make, you just want me to make all the art for Nine Inch Nails album? <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, but the stuff I was making was my first, the stuff that I'd been making that he saw was kind of my first experiments with, um, with digital glitching. And it, it was kind of born out of really starting to think about using um, visual technology in the way that Trent uses uh, musical technology. And um, I got some really cool stuff from DV cameras and, you know, we had so many tapes that got fucked up when we were uh, recording so many hours of footage on the road. And, and I really liked all, I really liked the way that DV tapes glitched. You know, they, they had these really cool blocky digital glitches when they'd fuck up. And I started capturing some of that stuff and, and just like applying the idea of using new technologies, flaws in, in a uh, aesthetic way. And, uh, the hand that feeds video was entirely based on, um, you know, doing video the wrong way. It, it utilized, um, interlacing of the video. And when we filmed <laughs> that video, we had a DP and he was like, well, you want to shoot 24 P? And I was like, no, 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 30 I. 30i. And he's like, this fucking kid doesn't know what he's doing. You, you want to shoot 24p? I'm like, no, no, no. Trust me. I need 30i. And it was because I, I figured out that, um, that After Effects at the time, when you digitize it and you like zoomed in on the footage, it if you didn't fix the interlacing, you could zoom in on the interlacing itself and it looks super fucked up and cool. <laughs> and, and like if any DP that, that like saw what I was doing was just like, what, what? That's wrong. That's so wrong. You're doing it everything wrong. And I was like, no, this is the aesthetic we want. <laughs> so, <laughs> so my glitch art fascination really was born out of trying to translate trans, um, relationship with musical technology into visual form. What is it about the glitch Ines that you find appealing though? Like, what, what is, why does that resonate with you? I think there's something just so interesting about finding beauty in accidents and mistakes and things that are wrong. Um, I don't, you know, it's kind of like, it's kind of a visual expression of, of fucking up and not, not obeying the rules and not doing things the way you're supposed to. And I think I learned a lot of my visual identity as an artist, I think came out of the fact that I was self-taught and I never, you know, I taught myself how to do everything in high school, and then I started going to school, but I never finished. And so I'd learn all these things myself, and oftentimes I would do them the wrong way, according to how you would be taught if you were taught how to do them. And I'd end up with all these happy accidents. And I learned a little bit about that from um, David Carson, the first you know, who's a very, very influential graphic designer, and the first oh, guy, yeah. the first guy that we worked with when I started with Nails, because he did the Fragile and. And when working with David Carson, it was like David Carson would like bring in, like he was not a technical guy at all. He was all feeling. And so much of his um, really fucked up looking stuff was because he didn't know what he was doing, but he'd be like, wait, I like that. That looks cool. Let's keep it like that. You know, he'd, he'd bring like, he'd bring like really low res images accidentally into Quark Express and it would get all pixelated and he was like, wait, wait, actually. And it's just someone would be like, wait, you're not using the high res. Like, no, no, but I like it like this. This is cool. Let's, <laughs> you know, and so there's stuff that's like pixelated and messed up and off center and fonts that don't match up because he didn't really know what he was doing and he was just experimenting. And then he caught something along the way that he really liked. And I've, I've learned, um, 
so many uh, different visual kind of tricks by doing it that way and by, by teaching myself and fucking up so many times along the way, but realizing halfway through the process, hey, wait a minute, I like this, let me try this. So I think I just got used to having a lot of inspiration from mistakes and, uh, and glitch art's kind of the ultimate embodiment of that. Yeah, the uh, the thing that I, that occurs to me is like just thinking about the last I don't know uh, decade or so of like graphic design and the direction that you know graphic design in general has sort of gone into everything's just kind of like marketing, you know, everything's just really super polished. Um, and the stuff that like personally resonates with me is stuff that's a little bit off, you know. Um, like the world is kind of the world's kind of boring now, you know. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, the more um, the more technology has has made it easy for everyone to make really really professional stuff. Um, I mean, you can you can do something that that would have taken you know a million dollar ad agency to make fifteen years ago. You can now do it with free software on the web, you know. So right, there's a polish to everything, even even stuff that. Um, that people are making as amateurs looks really professional now. So stuff that looks wrong and fucked up does tend to stand out, I think. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and I just, you know, I, I can't help it. I just, I like the way, I like the way uh, analog technology looks. I like the way old video looks. I like, I like pixels and, and yeah. noise and static and all this stuff. I just, I like the flaws of it that make it feel more tangible, that make it feel real to me. Yeah, and you, and you were you were bringing up uh, David Carson, and I know he um, he used to do like uh, magazine layouts and, and things like that. And sort of the something that's just been sad to me uh, watching the web evolve over time is this like sort of perfection of aesthetics. Um, you don't get things like you know a crazy you know montage of glitchy you know beauty in in the chaos type type stuff you know on like a you know music website or or anything you know it's just uh that stuff used to have it was it was big in the 90s right but it kind of kind of went out of favor yeah i mean i think um i think the experience of the web changed that's one thing we had to learn over time as we evolved um the nine Inch nails website when i was uh still working on that was we were really experimental uh, with our first early websites. Um, they were like the first nine channels website was a tease for the fragile. And it was just this grid that had weird sounds and images and no explanation for anything. It was like a little flash. Remember, website. Yeah. yeah. And it was meant to be experimental and it was meant to confuse you and intrigue you. And it wasn't, it didn't spell anything out for you. And, um, a lot of websites were in, you know, when Flash's heyday, a lot of websites back then were really artsy and, and weird because there wasn't a precedent set for what a website experience was supposed to be, right? So a lot of it right. was very um, kind of arty, multimedia heavy. And that was a really fun time on the web. And then over time, like as everything in, in terms of brands and news and culture and society all moved online... Um, no one had the patience for that anymore, understandably. It's like, just give me the information. I go to a band's website, I just want to see if they're on tour. What's the album? Just show it to me, you know? I don't want to play a game to, to try and figure this out. And that's, that's sort of understandable given how much we consume on the on the web now. But 
we did lose a little something from those early days, I think, visually. That's such a shame. It's like we've lost some of the romance of ambiguity. Now, now it's all, everything's got to go straight to the core, straight to the to the to the message. We don't have time for that bullshit anymore. You know? <laughs> like, Dr. David Lynch. Even my own personal website, ten years ago or so, like it was kind of already, and now I'm just like, well, I need people need to see what I do immediately. Yeah, <laughs> I've got them for six and a half seconds. I've got to make them count. <laughs> it really is. It's true. What a bummer. Um, yeah, it really is. Um, like I, I personally, I don't know. I, I'd like to see some of that. Uh, ambiguity and abstractness, you know, sort of come back. But I guess maybe, well, maybe that I, time I is think just over. Where it lives now is in places where someone's already committed their time and attention to, like um, indie video games, is where I see the most. You know, and it's like you're there oh, yeah. to have this experience, so they can take you on a journey a little bit and and do some more experimental video stuff and and graphic design stuff. Whereas um, you know, when someone's going to a website, you don't, you don't know if they're there to give you their time or not, you know? Uh, but I feel like, um, standalone experiences like, um, like games now uh, are where a lot of those ideas have gone. Yeah, that's a really excellent point. Um, yeah, a lot of the, and that's kind of how things change over time, right? Like, uh, things get expressed in new mediums, right? Yeah. Like when, when we did, um, we did end all that could have been. We spent an absurd amount of time on the DVD menus. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> when was the last time you really looked at a DVD menu? It's another thing I miss, man. <laughs> we spent so much time on it. It was all randomized. We were just we we sat with like a like I learned all about DVD authoring and stuff to make demos in DVD Studio, and. Um, and then we took it to like a professional DVD authoring place and I showed them the demos that I made and all the materials and we tried to push the limits of what we could do. We wanted randomization and like secret passcodes and stuff that, you know, if you like, like if you Konami coded on the main menu, it would go to like a secret thing. And like, <laughs> we like, we had backgrounds that were still images, but they weren't. It was like a really long video that would start to glitch over time. And just, we put an absurd amount of effort into making an artistic experience out of something that doesn't even exist anymore as a medium, you know? But it, but it was cool at the time. We had the coolest DVD menus out there. <laughs> you know how, so you can, you know, you can play old games by getting, you know, emulating. Um, I, want, I want to be able to emulate DVD menus on a website. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I actually it would be cool if we could like somehow translate the end all that could have been menus into a, a web experience because there was a lot of uh, there was a lot of cool shit in in those. <laughs> and Trent and Trent made like all these cool drones that would randomize the background sounds for all of them. It was like original compositions for the menus. <laughs> <laughs> wow, it's, uh, it's it's pretty crazy shit. I mean, so I got to talk to you a little bit about. Uh, I'm just going to indulge myself because you're here. And, uh, <laughs> You've earned this, oh, Zach. Go, no, go like, wild. So year zero, man. Like, um, so it's my it's my personal favorite, like Nine Inch Nails album. Mm -hmm. um, and I feel like uh, that album you maybe had the most influence over, as far as the you know the, the visual side of it and the the story and and all of that, like. Tell me a little bit just how, uh, how that came about. Um, I mean, it really, I mean, that that's probably my favorite thing um, that we did overall. I mean, there's 
there's it's hard to compare. There's other things too, like the tour we did um, around that um, was one of my favorite tours, and, and the production that we did around it was like a high point, you know, from my career. But Year Zero, in terms of all the albums, was like it was just an experience unlike anything else. It was and such I'm, a bringing together of multiple mediums and the ARG stuff, like, and it was a a moment in time that. Like, you know, it couldn't have happened before and it really couldn't happen after, you know, like I, I agree. Just, I think I don't yeah. I think like um, I think anything that's kind of that's been attempted like that in the music world since has just seemed a lot like clever advertising. And I think what really made um, Year Zero unique was that it genuinely didn't feel like advertising because it wasn't. We were we were using a marketing budget to make an art project. And, um, you know, we got, we got the, uh, record label to fork over a ton of money for the marketing of the new Nine Inch Nails album. And we spent it on 42 Entertainment, this company that does these ARGs to make an interactive art project, uh, instead of, you know, doing any traditional marketing. And the, the pitch originally that Trent came to me with was, you know, I'm writing this album. that's a concept album. It's, it's not, um. It's not. It's my first album. That's not like coming from, you know, a real personal place. It's coming from me speaking as these like characters in a future world that I'm like thinking about as a way to comment on, um, you know, where we're at right now in politics. And he was like, and I, I just, I miss the experience of pouring through a detailed um, album art in a vinyl. You know, with the the way he would experience artwork growing up. You know, as a teenager, like. And he was like, no one really does that anymore. You know, you can, at that time, people were starting to move to digital. Uh, CDs are an unexciting way to look through album art. And uh, he's like, how do we, how do we have that experience of really pouring through an elaborate um, liner notes experience in the digital age? And um, he showed me what he had been like starting to work out for the songs and the lyrics and this kind of world he was building. And, um, I started like coming up with ideas to help him like flesh out this world. And then I remembered seeing this, um, really cool thing that had been done for the movie AI, um, where they hid codes in the, in the trailer that led to this whole network of websites that were, it was an elaborate ARG and it was like one of the first major ARGs and really fleshed out the whole world of the movie in a really, um, mysterious and engaging way and I was really impressed by that and I was like what if we did something like this and I showed him that and and we he's like well let's just go talk to that company and that was 42 entertainment so we went and talked to them about what we could do and those guys are amazing and we we all just got along really well and just ended up coming up with this huge elaborate experience and building this entire universe out of it along the way and it was amazing Whose idea was it to hide the uh, the thumb drive in the bathroom stall? That was, I believe that was Alex from 42. Okay. <laughs> well, he didn't say bathroom specifically. He was like, he hides some <laughs> thumb drives at shows. But um, it was it was on us to figure out places to put them. And the bathroom one was the one that was found. just And that was the one that got all the attention. But we were hiding them right. all over the venue. It just happened oh, to yeah, be. Because yeah. we hit a bunch of them. Because, you know. <laughs> We're counting on someone first finding it, then having the curiosity to take it home, look at it, 
and then also be someone who's online enough to like share it with the world, you know, because right. we left all these artifacts <laughs> out in the real world, but we were counting on people to bring them online to get everyone else excited. So, you know, it was perfect actually that it was the bathroom one because everyone always talks about that, the USB drives in the bathroom, but there were actually a ton more in different places. <laughs> it's just Do you that. know if any of the others got found or are they still out there still waiting? We don't know. I mean, well, there were later instances where we hid stuff like that, but at that point people were like tuned in and like looking everywhere for it. But from that first show, (laughs) that was the first like physical clue that we dropped. I have no idea where those other ones ended up. If if someone has them or realizes what they have or, or if they just got swept away by the gender, I don't know. There's probably a Netflix documentary in that. Where are they now? (laughs) I, I would love to, uh, Dude, we should have done a behind-the-scenes documentary on the whole. I was about to say, yeah, I would love to see like that. Should almost be like a Kickstarter or something. Uh, just a <laughs> yeah. Freaking, just, a, I mean, I'm sure you've got loads of materials from that time. Just a documentary going into. I mean, it was actually like a really important thing on the internet, right? Like, like when I think of uh, things along those lines that have happened, I think of like Blair Witch Project, and then I immediately jump to Year Zero after that, like. You know, things, something that people really like dug into on on the Internet and became like a part of that world and just spent hours and hours. Not that I did this, um, (laughs) (laughs) spent hours and hours and days and days, you know, pouring over every little bit of information, every new website and all that. Like, yeah, well, one of of the things that I think has made it and, and I hear this so often from so many people like, dude, the year zero experience was just like so life-changing for me and like you know they people really remember it and part of the reason for that is how well um trent and i and 42 entertainment all understood the value of community building and uh, so much of that whole experience was about requiring a community to come together organically and work together to figure it all out and kind of the genius of it was we didn't like make a website, yearzero.com, log in to talk to your friends and figure out the solutions, you know? <laughs> there was nothing like that. It was just breadcrumbs left out in the world. And it allowed the, the fans who were interested in it to start creating their own communities and their own forums and discussions. And they were the organizers of it. So they, and, and the way those ARGs work is that the story can't evolve until they find the new clues. So, the the people participating in the game were extremely vital to the whole experience and it was it was uh, everyone working together and that i think that's a real big part of why those people who participated in it remember it so strongly because the, the, they were they were an essential part of the experience it wasn't it wasn't just us broadcasting things to them and them consuming it you know it was interactive right yeah, and I mean, something I've just always respected about uh, Nine Inch Nails and your work uh, and Trent's work is just the attention to detail, uh, the amount of sort of, you know, Easter eggs and such that you sort of always left for the fans uh, created this fan base that's, you know, like this side of, I don't know, like Apple. <laughs> there's not there's not a whole lot of uh, more like energized fan bases the nine inch nails well, it's probably not a coincidence that we were all such apple fans <laughs> right <laughs> you gotta keep you gotta keep the the cult people together right yeah but <laughs> i mean yeah it worked both ways because we we were really just attention um attention to detail oriented people 
and we loved obsessing over little things and just and hiding things and going into like the the details and just playing games and all that kind of stuff but um it just turned out that the type of people who listen to nine nails had the same kind of mindset so yeah the more we started to do stuff like that and we did so much of it on the web and with albums and everything and the you know even for year zero we were just doing all kinds of little stuff like that but the more I mean, we the more we did, did it the more the fan base just latched onto it and loved it so much and then they started challenging us because <laughs> it was like yeah. we couldn't put anything out without knowing that they were going to pour over every little detail and then we started playing with that too cuz like when we were teasing new albums we sometimes they'd like they'd start digging into the directory structure of our website and finding files that weren't meant to go public. Right. So we're like, okay, okay, you fuckers, we're going to plant a bunch of bullshit in here. A couple of times we would like hide stuff in the directory structure that you'd have to guess like, you know, nin.com slash new album or something like that. And then we'd just have a mysterious, we'd like leave the directory open and have a mysterious zip file in there full of like a bunch of, you know, MP3s of static and it was meant as a fuck you to the people who were digging around in our website trying to find stuff. So we're like, okay, here you go. Here's like 16 files of static at different lengths that you guys can spend hours on trying to figure out what it means. And it means fuck all. <laughs> That's what it means. <laughs> so the, there's a lot of like um, – there was a lot of back and forth with the community in terms of how they pushed us to um, to all, to always have to focus so much on detail and, and – make it more and more fun and engaging in that. And that's ultimately what led us to wanting to do the year zero ARGs because we knew that if there was any fan base of any band that was going to get into it, it was going to be ours. <laughs> and as, as just as a, as a product, like the, the final product, the, the act, like the actual CD case um, and the CD itself, like being a, like having this, thermal coating over it where if you touched it like it it changed color like this is, it's crazy shit the, the amount of stuff that you guys <laughs> i know and there's and there's clues you know. there's clues underneath that thermal you know thing right the, the, i think the the only bummer really about um about that whole arg experience is that there's no easy way to to package it no it can never be experienced yeah. again you know the fans have archived it all meticulously and they made a really cool book that you can download and print out that has every artifact from the whole experience so it's and i have one of those it's really cool to be able to have um that as a souvenir but the experience itself was interactive and it was temporal it was it was a moment in time and it, it you can't you, you can look through it all again and remember it but you can't actually revisit the the experience as it was isn't that kind of the nice thing about it, though, that it is so, like, you sort of had to be there? Yeah, I, I think it is. And I, and I think that's another thing about it that that is the reason of all the things we've done, people just bring that up the most to me. Like, man, I was there for year zero, you know? It's, it's, <laughs> it's, if, you're, if you're of a certain age and like a certain type of music, it's like your little Woodstock that you can tell people, like, dude, I was there, man. <laughs> and one, one of the more unfortunate things about it i i suppose is the fact that it does hold up so well uh against <laughs> the way that society has gone and uh you know um it's it's more relevant than ever and you know but that's not something that you were hoping for <laughs> no it's it's not what we were hoping for but <laughs> right but pe people ask me all the time like hey man is there ever gonna be like 
a year zero TV show? And I was like, yeah, it's on right now. Just turn on the news. (laughs) (laughs) There's your year zero TV show. (laughs) We did it guys. It's actually, it's a, it's a nightly show. (laughs) The ARG just turned into an RG. Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) I got to interrupt for a minute to talk to you about simple contacts. Do you wear contact lenses? If you do, I have something pretty incredible to share with you today. Imagine being able to renew your contact lens prescription in under five minutes right from your couch. Sounds a little crazy, right? It's not crazy. It's a fantastic new app called Simple Contacts. Anyone who wears contact lenses needs to know about this. Simple Contacts lets you renew your prescription and reorder your brand of lenses from anywhere in minutes through an online vision test. This test is designed by doctors and every test is reviewed by a doctor. So they're literally bringing the doctor's office to your home. With the Simple Contacts app, you're saving time and money. You don't have to take time off from work. It's convenient and easy. The vision test is only $20, a mere fraction of what you'd be spending out of pocket at an appointment. And you don't have to take my word for it. Simple Contacts has been rated five stars over 4,500 times on the App Store. These contact lens prices are unbeatable. The vision test is only $20 and the shipping is free. Now get this. Menu Bar listeners get $20 off their first Simple Contacts order. You can either enter promo code MENU at checkout through the Simple Contacts app or head over to simplecontacts.com menu to get that discount applied. This is a great company, and we really couldn't be more thrilled to have them as a sponsor this week. One more time, that promo code is MENU. Thank you to Simple Contacts and back to the show. I remember the uh, you guys had the, the TV show sort of gestating forever. I assume that's finally dead, right? Um, I mean, it's something that I guess is still technically HBO has it. But yeah, as a project, it's, it's long gone. Yeah. It kind of yeah. slipped into development hell. And then, um, you know, and then... And now it's on the news, so... <laughs> a, it, a lot of things happened with the process. We, we just, we didn't have the right team and the... The process became frustrating and Chums was just like frustrated with it and wanted to get back to, you know, music and stuff. But but another kind of un, unspoken thing that happened was, and, and it's a bummer because we had a really great ideas and we were really building into something that was going to be cool. But the thing that was a good thing, but also a bad thing, was Obama got elected um, right in the midst of us working on that show. And, um, there was a certain sense of like, well, everyone's kind of filled with hope right now. Yeah. And this like dystopian vision that was very much born out of the Bush years just didn't seem like it was going to, uh, fly as well when everyone was kind of like, Hey, things are actually going to change now. And, you know, nothing, (laughs) nothing really changes. I mean, you know, some stuff felt better for a while, but you know, we're still, we're still at war. We're still spying on our own people. Sure. We're still, you know, like you know, the, the, a lot of the bad things kept going, but there was a sense that things were moving in the right direction. And in a lot of ways there were. Um, yeah. I can understand from a marketing perspective that it felt like, okay, but that chapter is over. Yeah. Yeah. Just, I don't, I don't yeah. know that it would have been an easy pitch at that point to ask people to like, slog through here's a vision of all the worst things that are going wrong in the country when everyone was kind of you know after being exhausted by the bush years everyone was kind of just wanting to feel like hey things have turned a corner you know right we don't want to feel miserable about the direction of the country anymore and um you know ultimately that obviously that's a good thing 
But um, if only it had been true. <laughs> yeah, exactly. If only, <laughs> if only it had been true. And then, now we just now it's pointless because we're just living it. So. <laughs> Right. If we weren't living it, it would uh, make sense as a podcast miniseries. Yes, it would. <laughs> Me and Zach will do it. We'll take that on, won't we? Yeah. <laughs> when we all, we'll get, Send we'll us get the script. <laughs> I was just talking to someone the other day about how I felt like it's it's time for the the elaborate audio drama to radio drama type thing to come back. Oh, I I agree. I think, well, and there's a lot of that going on, but it's still fairly niche aside from like, obviously, like Welcome to Night Vale is huge. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, no, I feel like that's that's kind of poised to come back in a pretty big way. Yeah, I mean, like when with so many people listening to podcasts and stuff, it, it just seems to make sense that people would be into a really well done radio drama type thing. I, I always used to love listening to radio dramas when I was a kid. Yeah, no, absolutely. So I guess the the next big thing I want to I want to talk to you about is um, beats music mm-hmm. and. And so this is something that uh, I, I don't feel like there's been a ton of like insight into. Well, one like okay, so when when we did the first run of this show, um, it's interesting. Like I I was kind of an early um, supporter, or proponent of uh, of Beats music, and I'll be honest, like it was almost a hundred percent because I knew that you and and Trent Reznor were <laughs> were involved. And it was like, because I was thinking, these, you know, these guys are not, are not sellouts. This is not a situation like, like Alicia Keys being, you know, uh, the creative director of, uh, you know, BlackBerry, right? I knew that you guys had to have been like, you know, involved, and that's the only way that you would have been involved. Um, so I guess like, how did how did everything with beats music come together? How did you guys end up working um you know with that and yeah well, the way it started was um Jimmy Iovine, uh who Trent's known for many years because Jimmy signed him to uh, Interscope records with Nudge nails um he came to Trent because of uh beats headphones and wanted Trent to like help them out with some like I don't know, some kind of gamer headphones or something. They were like really audiophile headphones and like get Trent's audio expertise uh, involved in that. And that was kind of an interesting project for Trent. And while he was working on that, um, Jimmy just kind of happened to throw this thing uh, at him. Like, hey, we're kind of, we're doing this project called Daisy with a streaming music service. Do you want to like see what we're doing and give some feedback? And Trent was like, yeah, sure. That's, that sounds interesting because streaming music was something that Trent and I talked about all the time back then. Um, it was the early days of Spotify and Spotify was such a shitty product back then. It was like, it really was. Yeah. It was like a spreadsheet made by engineers and it was just mm-hmm. so unfriendly and so uninspiring. You know, there, there was nothing about, it was like, it was just like a file folder full of MP3s almost. It, and it, nothing about it felt like it, it was cold. Yeah, it was cold. It didn't, it didn't feel like it had the heart of, of the music experience. And I mean, it was, it was similar to the transition that music made. I mean, just to MP3s. Right. Um, but it, but it felt even like, it just felt like the, the next stage of that, um, just that much more disconnection from the music, from the artist, from the, yeah, exactly. the artwork, the liner notes and everything else that goes along with the experience, which, you know, Nine Inch Nails 
has always been so, you know, detail oriented around the experience that I imagine that you guys were constantly having conversations about this. Yeah. I mean, we, we found it very frustrating. It was like, it, it was like, a you know, these engineers just said, well, here is a spreadsheet where all of this music data is accessible. See, we have no opinion <laughs> right. on it. We're not going to present it in an interesting way, but you can access all of the music. Do you know what you want? Search here in the search bar and you can find it. And it's like, well, that's great if I know exactly what I want to listen to. It's, it's, it's very much a, uh, you spent so long thinking about whether or not you could, you didn't stop to think if you should. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it's just like, okay, yes, <laughs> technically I can access all this music, but that doesn't do much for me if I don't, if I'm not sure what I want to listen to. You know, it, it, And we talked a lot about like, why is no one capturing the experience of going to a good record store from the old days, you know, where they... They had staff picks, you know, when we first walked in that you trusted. And if you ask the the bearded dude with the earplugs in there what what was good, he'd be like, "Oh, dude, check this out," you know. And it was like it 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 felt organic. It felt um, it felt like an experience of discovering music, and that was never really recreated. And you know, so we used to talk about that a lot. So Trent was obviously really interested in um, in seeing what. Beats was working on as a fledgling competitor uh, to Spotify, and he asked me to come along uh, to go, you know, see their pitch. And um, before we did that, Sharon was like, "What if, if we were to design a music service and express all of our frustrations with what exists out there? How would we design it?" And we just started talking about ideas and sketching things out on napkins, and and um, Trent was like let's just put this together in a document and have it to, um, to be able to show, you know, just let's, you know, Jimmy wants my input. Let's give him our ideas. And we went and the the team that, um, Jimmy had put together at the time, um, for Daisy was, um, very much like music tech people. Um, and I say that that way. Cause like, I feel like, the early days of the music websites and um, were kind of like record, you, you know, when like record industry people started trying to do digital stuff. Right. And it was always so record company. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure how else to explain it. It just has very this... simplistic. Like here, here's, here's the image, here's the song file and we're done. Yeah. And it, it was all about marketing and it was very technologically clueless and didn't, you know, it was so out of touch with how people, it, it was them trying to recover from the, the whole MP3 file sharing disaster and like but you know it would always be something like download the universal music player and you can (laughs) you can get a digital lyric experience and everything's watermarked and you can only play it on your universal music player you know Uh, it all had that kind of vibe to it in those early days and i felt like a lot of um (laughs) i felt like a lot of the the approach that they had taken with daisy at, at that point was coming from people from that world and the, when they pitched it to us, it was like, we were just kind of like, oh, this sucks. And, and Trent was like, I, I don't want to be involved in this. This is not what we think a music experience should be. And, and Jimmy was like, well, what do you think it should be? And Trent gave him our, our notes of, of our ideas. And Jimmy was like, yes, this is, this is what I want it to be. And, it, and that, um, that led to him putting Trent creatively in charge of the Daisy project. And we built a whole new team 
and um, we had a really incredible early days where it felt like a startup. We had about five really good people from all different fields, all just sitting in, in a room with whiteboards and just structuring out this whole vision. And it was, it was really exciting and it was really cool. And um, it, for a, a lot of reasons, that vision never really came to fruition. Uh, but um, a lot of the ideas are out there now. And there, a lot of them are in Apple Music and a lot of them are in Spotify now. Um, so, you know, we were like, we were really coming up with a lot of ideas that are now the direction everything's heading, uh, which is cool to see. But I, w- uh, I, w- I would like to pers- per- personally, I want to see the return of the sentence, but that's, you know, that's just <laughs> the sentence was my idea, actually. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I know you, you had mentioned that on Twitter and I think that was actually the sort of impetus of this whole conversation that we're having was I was like I I really want to hear more about this man. Well what the the main thing that we that we brought to um the idea of how music is curated um was curation itself actually and and at the time there was absolutely no curation on Spotify. Now Spotify's embraced it uh, quite quite heavily. Um but our our thought back then was that you know you needed some kind of um, opinion then. And if you, if you're looking, when you're looking for recommendations for music, you're looking at people you trust. You're looking at the music blog that you always go to. You're looking for that guy in the record store that, you know, recommends good shit. You're looking for your radio station DJ that you like to listen to. And how do we bring that experience to digital music? And our idea was to combine algorithms with um, weighted opinions by editors. So, if you, if we're using an algorithm to try and determine what you're going to like, it's also has our editorial opinion built into it. So if you like this song, the algorithm is going to point you towards songs that our editorial staff has determined you're also going to like. So we, you know, the editors would like work through the whole database and put it into buckets with tags and say, we're not just going to rely on computers to determine what you're going to like because music is emotional and it's personal. And just because you like this one thing, you don't, you're not necessarily going to like something that the computer decides sounds like it or other people listen to, you know, but someone who really knows music can tell you, Oh, you like this? You're going to like this thing. A computer would never catch that, you know? So that, that was a big part of it. And the sentence was, um, was kind of a primitive early experiment in the idea that, when you filled out the sentence, the goal was what it's being populated with was chosen by our editorial staff to match the tags that were in there. And it wasn't just, it wasn't just using like the same databases that the algorithms pull from that all the other services were using. And it wasn't just, well, some people who listen to this also listen to this. It was us having an opinion and inserting that into the experience. Yeah. It's, it was, uh, <clears throat> I mean, and and that's the, and that's one of the things that translated when it changed over to Apple Music was our whole editorial team went over there and like Beats Radio and stuff like that. Those were all ideas um, that came from Beats Music uh, about the idea that people sometimes want to be recommended and told and curated. It's not just like there's nothing worse than that old school Spotify experience of just opening up that app and just staring at a blank screen and being like. What do I want to listen to? And and our idea was that you could get curated playlists automatically built for you every day 
that would learn over time so that when you open up your app in the morning on your way to work, it's like, hey, here's Zach's driving to work playlist. And it starts to learn the type of music that you like to listen to when you're driving to work, you know? And, uh, and we have an opinion on that as well. Like we go, okay, we know this guy likes indie rock and we know he likes this, these types of bands. Well, here's stuff that we think is good. If you're that person that you would want to listen to when you're in this type of, yeah, I mean, the thing that I've, I mean, and to this day, I don't think I I don't feel like anything has a hundred percent nailed what I want from a, from a music streaming platform. Um, but like beats music for me came the the closest and it was like i guess some things have come further along in terms of um algorithm plus uh uh curation um you know since that since then but the thing about beats music is that it felt uh it felt like it was coming from a real sort of like genuine place of wanting to change things um I mean, like even the marketing around it was all, you know, very kind of heavy handed in that direction. I remember the first um, like the commercial that uh, I I believe Trent did the narration for Um, very, very, you know, shades of Apple, you know, kind of like a kind of like a here's to the crazy ones, but for music. Yeah. And and we had a really bold vision for that, that. um you know, that we never got a chance to fully realize it, you know, the, the app that came out was just kind of, it, there was a lot of internal drama about launch times and, uh, but it wasn't the app that we wanted to launch with. There was a lot more features, uh, that we wanted to include that never ended up getting built after that, but it was like the rough sketch yeah. of where we wanted to go. And, and I, st- I, I was really proud of that rough sketch. Um, and I, I was hoping we'd be able to unveil a lot more of the features that we designed more quickly. But, but then, you know, then Apple bought it and everything changed. Right. It is what it is, but I, I feel proud that the sketch and the vision that we had is is like the direction that everything now is going. And, and yeah. we kind of, like, we, our instincts were right, I guess. Absolutely. I mean, time has definitely borne out a lot of those early ideas, right? Like it's, it's, that's the way things are now. Everything is about, um, curation plus algorithm. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that was really a big part of our vision. And we just, we wanted to, we had a lot of other ideas. I mean, I designed a a huge social layer that, that, uh, no, no service has yet to, uh, to even attempt. The social side of, of current streaming music services, I feel like is where things leave the most to be desired like yeah and i i was the I, I was the architect of a huge streaming layer in beats music that i argued was essential to the launch experience and sure, it should yeah. be ingrained into everything you do and um it, you know it got it got cut from the launch um for time and you know when it moved over to apple apple didn't really want anything to do with social so it never really materialized and i and i still don't think anyone solved it yet but um i I really liked, um, and, and Trent was a big believer in the social aspect of it too. And I really liked what we were doing there. And I wish, I wish we'd gotten a chance to do that. Cause it, it, like, it was something we designed because we wanted it, you know, like we wanted, yeah. we wanted a place to talk about music and, and share music and, um, and also like have things ingrained in it. Like, you know, if something on SoundCloud is happening and something on YouTube is happening, 
you can pull those in to your streaming music experience. Like, right. So that you can talk about all different types of music, not just the catalog of music that this streaming service has, you know? Well, and something I've heard is, uh, from multiple people in the industry over the years is just like a lot of, a lot of what you would like to see in these kinds of services, uh, really kind of comes down to like a rights quagmire. Like there's just all sorts of crazy stuff that you don't know. (laughs) Oh, absolutely. It's a nightmare. Yeah. And that's why like my argument was, we can't make an effective social layer unless we're able to import stuff from other services like right. like SoundCloud especially because Absolutely, with the yeah. system the way it was you know if artist x wants to just like make something real quick and just like throw it out there they they can't just throw it on to um the music streaming services easily um and but they're all doing that on SoundCloud and that's where like that's where the kind of the underground music scene is happening. And I just thought, let's just partner with them and bring that content in and bring in YouTube content so that whatever it is you want to talk about, even if we don't have it on our catalog yet, you can still talk about it within our social layer. And I I thought, I thought a social layer that only allowed sharing and conversation around the music catalog was pointless. Like at the at the time, no one even had the Beatles. It's like, how are you supposed to talk about music without the Beatles? It's stupid. Yeah, <laughs> you know. And so there were there were all these gaps um, that that were uh, preventing what everyone really wanted because of the limitations of licensing. And you know, I mean, I still feel like the licensing thing is such a weird problem all around entertainment now. TV, movies, music, everything. It's just. It's just bullshit. You like, I spent some time. I spent some time in <laughs> right. Canada. I was living in Canada for a little while in 2016, and it's like, there's so much shit you can't watch just because you're on the other side of this border. Like, their Netflix is terrible, and their YouTube is terrible. There's so much stuff that's just blocked because they haven't figured out the rights yet. Uh, and it's crazy to me that they're just leaving all this stuff on the table. My Canadian friends come here to the States and go on Netflix and they're like, wow, you guys have so much more. It's like, what's the holdup? Just too many lawyers involved, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, you know, you think of all those record label execs had to find other jobs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, and that that was one of my, I was a big proponent back in the day of um, of piracy as a means of forcing the industry forward. Um, and I wrote a big op-ed on it. I bet you're a popular guy. (laughs) Yeah. Well, yeah, I I was always the guy who came in and was like, you know, this is how people are doing it online, right? No matter what rules you create, the the record company people hated me, (laughs) but, but I I wrote a big op-ed on it one time about how much the, some of the pirate communities were doing 10,000 times better at presenting a music experience, uh, that was driven by fans and music lovers and how most of those people and were the people who were buying tons of music. And they just wanted an experience that at the time, no one was legally giving them. And, and I feel like that, that community really forced record industries, who if they had their way, would have just kept forcing everyone to buy 1899 CDs for the rest of time. <laughs> you know, and it was, it was those pirate communities that, that really forced them into the digital age. And I don't think we'd have Spotify if we didn't have Napster, you know? Yeah, something that occurs to me is the fact that there are so many people these days that um, 
it's always shocking to me when I find out that there are people who almost exclusively listen to music through YouTube. That weirds me out too. <laughs> well, and it's interesting because YouTube grew as like this emergent thing that hadn't existed before and had, there was like no control over it really. Um, and to this day, there kind of still isn't. And it's, it's, it, um, Obviously, they're trying very, very hard, and there are now rights issues that there didn't used to be, right? It, it, it used to just be, like, uh, you know, impossible to, <laughs> to uh, you know, clamp down on people using random songs for random videos and all these different things. They're finally kind of starting to clamp down on this stuff. But even now, it's, there's just too much of it. You can't possibly... Uh, police at all yeah i mean youtube is a hellhole <laughs> for a lot of reasons oh no i agree <laughs> it's terrible but um but absolutely yeah. imagine going to a record shop but everyone's screaming at you <laughs> <laughs> yeah. but i guess my my point with with youtube is um you know, music streaming never really got to have that wild west moment um and and, no, that, it, and that's exactly what i'm saying is that wild west moment was happening on torrent sites yeah and right there was some really incredible the the I don't think it's online anymore, but the thing I wrote about was about this private music um, torrent site called Oink. It was really influential on the on the underground torrent scene, and they you you know you had to get an invite to get in there, so it was like kind of kept away from prying record company eyes for a while, and eventually got shut down. But Oink was this incredible community of music lovers, and they built their own software that organized music better than anything else by leagues at the time. And there was stuff on there like, um, oh, if you like, you know, you go to this artist and you can see their entire discography and it's super well organized and everything was in flack and different versions and imports. And if you like this artist, you might like these. And here's a collage of all their B-sides and these were all their like imports. And everyone was working together to organize this stuff the way a music lover would. And without any rules or restrictions, sure, it was all illegal, but without any rules or restrictions, they were able to create the ultimate music library. And it was really cool. And everyone on there were people who bought concert tickets, bought vinyls, bought everything, and they would have paid handily for that experience. But it was impossible due to rights and due to the, you know, the way that the rights owners looked at things. And uh, it, it, it's a shame because, you know, it was a glimpse into how things can be without borders, you know, and it, it wasn't right. about stealing. It was about people wanting as music lovers to build something that no one else was offering them anywhere at the time. You know, this was like pre-Spotify. Even. Yeah. Um, well, and uh, Nine Inch Nails has, you know, experimented quite a bit with like... Um you know, creative commons and, and, and that sort of thing. What, what, what's sort of your personal you know, stance and feeling about uh, intellectual property and, and copyrights and, and all this, all this stuff? Like, I'm a big fan of creative commons um, because I think they were the first uh, to really formally try to address the disconnect between rights owners and the way people online were experiencing content, you know? there was a massive disconnect and um, a lot of trust was broken on both sides when, you know, when file sharing started. And, um, you know, as I was saying, I, I, I really believe that 
and, and I think it's been proven now as the music industry has recovered that most people who were file sharing were doing so because there wasn't a legal alternative at the time. Yeah. They weren't doing it just to steal for the sake of stealing. They were doing it because no one was allowing them to listen to music in this new, vastly more convenient way, <laughs> you know? And, yeah. and when it first was like, oh, you can buy albums digitally and they're the same price as a physical CD and it, none of it made sense. You're trying to market us these iPods that can hold 10,000 albums and you're trying to tell me when we know clearly that it costs nothing to duplicate a digital file that this should cost the same amount as this disc. Right. And all of that had to do with the music industry trying to protect their own business model. They didn't want to evolve. And and a lot of the reasons they didn't want to evolve was because they had a good scam going. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah. When you work with um when you work with big record companies uh on the production end, you start to see all the ways that they mark everything up and the way that they um you know they use their own manufacturers for things. So oh, you want the slightly better paper? Well that's gonna cost you another dollar that's gonna be taken away from your profits on the album. Wait, but, but over here at this place, it says that they can make this for five cents. Yeah, but we can only do it through our company that manufactures it and our company charges a dollar. Well, that's convenient, isn't it? <laughs> you know, <laughs> sounds kind of like the U S government to be honest. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, they had so many, they had so many institutions in place designed to make money that they were not willing to budge on anything when Valshank first started. And, uh, you know, so, they lost a lot of trust from music fans and from the perspective of the rights owners. And, you know, some artists were a little more tantrumy about this than others. <laughs> they lost the trust of their fans thinking, I believe incorrectly that their fans were out there just wanting to steal all their stuff now. Um, so, you know, I think um, creative commons was an attempt to bridge that together and say, there are instances where you might want to allow people to share and remix and and distribute the things you make, and you can provide a granular level of protection to it. And I use Creative Commons on all of my work, um, and just only limit it to uh, you can't uh, use it commercially, but otherwise do whatever you want. Yeah. And um, on my Patreon, I just started releasing um, all these like packs of textures, like high-res images and photos and stuff for graphic designers and artists and musicians and whatever to use. And those, because you're paying to be my Patreon, you can use for anything you want, including commercial, make your album cover, whatever. Um, and I use creative, yeah, I use creative I, comments for that. And it's great. Yeah. I've, uh, I've subscribed to a number of people on Patreon in the past and your Patreon by far, uh, seems to contain the most value between like the tutorials, the images you give away for free, the texture packs, the wallpapers, like, Man, you got a lot of content on there. Well, thanks. I, I think part of that stems from like my feeling of like I, I hate the idea of asking for people's money. So if I am, I want to make sure that I'm giving them something back. You know, absolutely, yeah. And I, I think it's really cool because it's like you know you find that, and and again, this goes back to the old um, to the old discussion of how people handled file sharing at the time. It's like fans of things want to give back. They want to give you money. They really do. And we learned that in all our experience we did with Nine Inch Nails. And a lot of the problem with file sharing at the time was that no one was giving them a way to give money back to the artists so they could experience music the way that they wanted to experience it. 
And, um, and it's cool to see uh, business models like Patreon where you realize, Hey, there's a lot of people out there who do want to support me. And I have stuff that I can give back to them that they appreciate. And I, I think there's a really, really robust world out there for creators to make money. And it's, it's great that the internet's finally catching up with it. Do you guys feel like record labels are necessary anymore or are they kind of, should they just kind of die off? Like what, what is a record label for? I don't really, I'm, I'm not like, I don't work in music anymore. So I can't really comment. <laughs> Touche. <laughs> I will say that when, I mean, the last, um, the last real record company experience I had was uh, with How to Destroy Angels and Columbia Records. And it was nice to see that Columbia Records had a new generation of people working there that they really got it. And it wasn't, you know, it was the first time we went back to a label after going independent for so long. And it was nice to see that it wasn't just the same old guard uh, there that didn't understand how people consume music anymore. So there's a certain element of like, hey, we're putting in an album and there's this massive team there that has your back. That's going to help you sell it and help you get it out there and help you promote it. Um, that is kind of nice to have instead of you just having on your own to like yell into the void, please listen to my music. You know, <laughs> you know, you, you pay a price for that, but some, and it's, it's not for everybody. It, it really depends on the specific um, type of release, but sometimes it really is nice to have a team and, um, I'll just like the only current experience I have that I can relate to it is um, this comic book that I'm working on where, you know, I'm on, I'm on DC comics vertigo, which, um, you know, working, you know, working on a major label like that has its disadvantages in terms of control, but it has its advantages in the sense that like, I've never made a comic book before. And there's a whole team of people working for me that wanted to succeed. They're going to plug me in. Uh, they're going to make sure that I'm in every comic book store. They're talking to all the comic book stores. They're talking to the distributors. They're talking to the press and stuff like that. And, um, you know, for me as a new comics creator, I feel like I've got a huge leg up rather than just having all the control and all the money, but just doing my own Kickstarter thing and saying, Hey, 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 please. Anybody, anybody want to want to buy this? You know? So, I think it really depends on, on the type. Straight corner. Yeah, I think it really depends on the type of artist and the type of project you're doing. And there's a lot of reasons to say, yeah, just do it yourself. You don't need a record label. And then I think there's other uh, types of releases where you might just really want that that support. Yeah, I mean, there's something to be said for working within the constraints of you know um, dealing with a producer or a team of people that are you know they're they're everyone's sort of interested in the same end goal everybody wants this thing to be a success right and there are trade-offs and yeah there's also i think there's types of artists um especially in the music world who who really don't want to do the business end of it or don't understand it or don't understand marketing or don't want to deal with it they just want to make music yeah. I, I know some people like that and I think it's a, I think it's a dangerously outdated way to think now because I think for the most part you, you do have to be a business person and you do have to be a marketer in order to create your own stuff out there. But, you know, for some people, they're just really good at doing one thing and they want a, a team behind them. Uh, then a record label is a really good 
option for them. And, and I do know really, really, really talented artists who just have no idea how to market themselves on social media, no idea you know, how to distribute things or anything like that. They just make good music. So right. it, it is good to have that option for those types of people who just don't want to run their own business. Because it, it's, it's exhausting, you know, running your own business. It's a lot of work. It's not creative work. You know, I spend so much time on things that aren't creating uh, when I do my own stuff. And that's just part of the, that's part of the deal. So to a certain extent, labels and, and things like that take that off your hands but they also take a lot of other things. <laughs> so uh, it's a trade-off. Um, tell us more about, uh, about high level. Uh, like just, you know, wh- where did, where did this, uh, well, what is the story uh, for our audience members and, and what, uh, when can we expect to be able to buy this thing? Um, well, high levels uh, interesting because it, it in a way relates to uh, your zero that we were talking about earlier because, um, oh. <laughs> well, not, not you have my attention. I just heard Zach uh, salivate. Not directly, but um, spiritually. Yeah, I mean, the way it came about was um, post Nine Inch Nails. I was just um, on my own, kind of fiddling around with a variety of different projects. But one of them was I wanted to get back into writing and and do stuff that I'd, I I didn't want to just like go work for another band because I'm not going to get another creative relationship like the one I have to Nine Inch Nails and Trent, you know, it's just not going to happen again. And most, most bands don't have their own art director. And I didn't just want to go around being like, okay, artist X, I'll just make your album cover and I'll do this. And, you know, it just, <laughs> it wasn't inspiring for me after like 20 years of making stuff um, for nails. I wanted to make my own stuff. Um, so I was kind of fiddling around with a bunch of different uh, ideas when, um, I was contacted by uh, my editor, uh, who, well, my now editor, um, who was a DC editor, um, who was moving over to this uh, new relaunch of Vertigo Comics. I don't know if you guys know much about comics, but Vertigo was a really influential comic label in the 90s. Yeah. It's where Sandman and... Sandman. Sandman, Preacher, Transmetropolitan, a bunch of yeah. really influential comics that were they were really important to me when I was a teenager because they it was all of a sudden like comics were growing up with me and I was like, Whoa, it was also kind of the comic book, like counterculture. Exactly. It was, it was super counterculture in the 90. And as comics expanded over the years, Vertigo kind of lost its, um, it's not that they weren't still making good comics, but they weren't like, there's so many other people out there doing interesting stuff that they kind of lost their brand identity a little bit. And, um, DC's idea was to, totally revamped the Vertigo line for their 25th anniversary, starting with, uh, a, you know, a new Sandman series. And then one of their ideas was to get um, some new voices into comics and just see if they could create some new counterculture type stuff in the spirit of the original Vertigo by asking creators from other fields to come in and, um, and pitch their very first comic books. So um, I, I got a call from um, this guy who was a DC editor and he said, you know, I'm a big fan of your work. And I was a huge fan of year zero, especially. And that showed me like, this guy tells really good stories. I wonder if he's got an idea for a comic book and we're, we're looking for people to pitch vertigo comics. And I was like, Oh my God, vertigo. Are you serious? Like that, (laughs) 
that like <laughs> that was so important to me as a teenager that it's like yeah. it's literally was like second to working with nine inch nails on my teenage wish list you know so <laughs> i was kind of blown away and um I was like, whoa, uh, yeah, yeah, I, uh, uh, I can come up with an idea for a comic. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, so I started working on a pitch for them, and uh, it turned out that I, that all of these ideas I've had um, brewing, and all of my kind of like feelings about the world right now um, were already all there, and I just distilled them into this like cyberpunk story about a distant future of America, and um, in that sense, you know. I, it it's owing a lot to Year Zero in the sense that he was a big fan of Year Zero, and that's why I have the comic book. And I I learned so much from working on the Year Zero TV show and the and the album of like creating a science fiction story that exists in a different world that is really talking about our world right now. You know what I mean? And I think that's what the best sci-fi does is is comment from a distance. It allows you to get lost in fantasy where you, you don't have the same prejudices uh, of everything that you do with current politics. And you can see things in a different way through through a sci-fi lens. So that uh, that kind of changed my whole world when uh, when I, I went out in the forest and sat in, uh, in our RV and just like worked for weeks uh, building this whole sci-fi world out and uh, brought everything back to um, and, and also just like being off the grid and RVing around with my wife and my dog and just being in the forest was like hugely inspirational and uh, I came back to DC with a big pitch and they loved it and now it's a comic book coming out in February fantastic we, I can't wait to read this thing this is gonna be it sounds like it's gonna be pretty amazing I'm I'm in I'm very proud of it. <laughs> That's all I can say. <laughs> I'm looking forward to people um, being able to check it out because it's, um, it's. I mean, it, it's something fun for me. I get to like, I get to tell the types of stories that I grew up on, that I love, um, and have my own version of it. And it's kind of like a big epic adventure that also kind of ties into a little bit of commentary on where we're at right now as a, as a society, uh, as a country, uh, you know, as a world. And, um, it's not, I, I don't have to like make a comic that's like fuck Donald Trump or whatever. <laughs> and I can, I can, <laughs> you know, you got Twitter for that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but you have every other moment of every day for that. Yeah. But if I get to tell a really fun, exciting science fiction adventure and along the way, you realize that it's actually making a lot of comments about right now. Um, that's a lot more fun for me, you know, as a creator to do it that way. And that's what we did with year zero. And it, it's so much, it, it's just very rewarding. So it's gotta be good. Like therapy. Oh honestly. yeah, for sure. For <laughs> sure. <laughs> yeah. It, Isn't that why anyone creates anything? <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Uh, I think all the best stuff is made as therapy probably. <laughs> All right, man. Well, this has been this has been an amazing show. Um, what a roller coaster! Yeah, uh, <laughs> we appreciate your time, and we look forward to you know everything that you're that you're doing now. And we hope uh, everyone goes and supports you on Patreon because you're not going to derive more value from any Patreon than this guy. I'm telling you, like <laughs> second only to the menu bar. 
Yes. Oh, I don't know about that. (laughs) Menu bar texture packs. Yeah. (laughs) Well, thanks, guys. I appreciate it.